Welcome to your commercial-free, uninterrupted investment show. Sponsored by the SEC-registered investment firm, Wilsey Asset Management, a fiduciary firm owned and operated by President Brent Wilsey, who has been putting clients' investment needs first for over 40 years. The Smart Investing Show has been giving unbiased financial information for over 27 years on local radio stations right here in San Diego, providing you with fundamental analysis on stocks and investments you want to know about. Now, here are your hosts, Brent and Chase Wilsey. Well, hello and welcome to Smart Investing Show. I'm Brent Wilsey, president of Wilsey Asset Management. Great to have you here with us on the show. Got a lot of things to talk about today and uh, always mention that we are the proud uh, investing partners of the San Diego Padres. And I'm very proud, very honored next Sunday, the Padre uh, Dodger game to throw out the first pitch uh, for the game. And I've been practicing my pitches and uh Gonna try to do the best I can. <laughs> Sixty-six feet is a lot longer than I thought it was. <laughs> you, you know, you, you watch it on TV, and sometimes you you see people and it's like, oh, how did they mess up that bad? And you're like, oh, it's actually more challenging than you think. <laughs> and also, too, we talked about not to put pressure on you, but oh, great, thanks. Go ahead. <laughs> when if if you like ever played sports or anything when you're a kid, like you know, playing on a high school field, and then you know, when I played in college and you're in those stadiums, it's like, wow. But then Petco, that's a whole nother oh, ball. When you yeah. look up and there's like, holy cow, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to try not to do. I'm going to try to focus on the catcher, yeah. not look around the stand, just focus on, like, okay, Brent, you can make it 66 feet. Just throw it. Just get it with about a five-foot box there is what I'm trying to do. <laughs> not even the strike zone. A five, my strike zone is a five-foot strike zone is what it is. But you I'm, just got to throw it to the guy that's catching the Going to catch it. Yeah, and he might have to move a little bit yeah. to catch my ball, but... Uh, <laughs> They've done it before. It's fine. I, I think so. So, very honored to do that. But um, on the show today, we got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, the GDP report uh, came out this past week. Talk about that. Uh, inflation, um, kind of almost non-eventful, but we'll talk about it. And then we want to talk about a recession. Keep going on and on. We're going to have one. Not going to have one. We'll give you our opinion on that and why what we see going on going forward. Yep. And always, if you want to join the show here, got a stock you're looking at, got a question about finance, investing, whatever it may be, that's what we're here for. You want to join the show, phone number here, here is 833-288-0973. Again, that's 833-288-0973. Well, let's talk about the GDP report, because while the GDP report showed the economy grew at an annualized singular adjusted rate of just 1.1% and was below the expectation of 2%, it showed the consumer is still spending, and I will say spending pretty healthily as well. Uh, in total, the consumer portion of GDP grew 3.7% as goods increased 6.5%, and services spending grew 2.3%. What really hurt the report was private investment as it subtracted 2.34% from the headline number. And then within that private investment, I mean, the, the big issue was the change in private inventories is that actually subtracted 2.26 percent from the headline numbers i mean you think about that if we go from a 1.1 percent you just remove the private inventories and obviously you can't do this but just right. for simplicity i mean you'd have a gdp closer to we'll call it three and a half percent almost so, i mean that that's a, a huge decline in the report also too residential investment was another negative as it fell 4.2 percent and also investment and equipment was actually lower by 7.3%. But there were some positives in the private investment space, and that included non-residential structures, which saw spending grow 11.2%. 
and intellectual property was up 3.8%. That includes things, obviously, like research and development and patents. Now, the support continues to make me believe that while the consumer may slow down, overall the economy is still in an okay spot. Again, not a booming spot, but an okay spot. And companies will also likely need to rebuild those inventories, which should be a benefit to GDP in the future quarters there. And and, and this 11.2% increase in the non-residential structures, I believe that is like your warehouses. And we, Mm -hmm. we talked about this before, that that area is just growing because we're bringing more uh, we had problems with the supply chain, so a lot of stuff is coming back here to the U.S., and the building on the warehouses and that supply chain, getting it back in order, is just booming. I think that's what that is. Yeah, and the other thing you got to think about is when you build these, again, these non-residential structures, or <laughs> we'll call them buildings, whatever, manufacturing and sites. offices, obviously, so they got to be, yeah. Yeah, they, they could, again, be those uh, warehouses, manufacturing sites. That's likely what it is. I, I'm just making an assumption here. They don't break that down in the report. But- those just aren't gonna sit empty. No. What are you gonna need? You're you're gonna need equipment. So now maybe yeah. that that non-residential spending, maybe those structures maybe slows down a little bit. But you could see perhaps a pickup in equipment spending because you got to fill those buildings now with equipment so they can actually be functional. And, and Chase, I, I have a graph that I looked at. Uh, it's a bar chart actually is what it is, uh, and it shows consumer spending way on the right hand side going way out, inventories going way down. Well, that's not going to last because if consumers continue to spend, they're going to need inventory to buy. Yep. So I think what's going to happen next quarter is I believe the consumer is going to keep on buying, keep on spending, and the inventories have to be rebuilt to get back up there. So worst case scenario, flat to get back to normal. Uh, what I think is going to happen is they get to rebuild those inventories so you have a positive on the inventory next quarter to make up for the loss that they had this time of declining inventories. And, you know, it, it's so true, and we, we keep talking about how we think the consumer's still going to spend. And yeah. it, it's not going to grow, and, and that's the issue that perhaps ensues, is that, you know, where we could hit a technical recession, it's just right. kind of a slowdown. But I, I don't see, again, a, a fall-off. I mean, I, this past week, I, I went to Phil's Barbecue, right. and I went with my friend, and we're driving around the parking lot, and we couldn't find a place to park, so we had to go somewhere else. Right. And I was just like, it was a Thursday night. I mean, yeah, kind of busy, but it wasn't like a Friday night. Or and I was like, wow, this is crazy. And then last night, I went to the Lakeside Rodeo. There, there wasn't a, a seat that was available. And I guess tonight, they're all sold out. Right. And I mean, just the town of Lakeside, it was packed last night. It was, it was crazy. And everywhere you go, I mean, I think back, and obviously I was younger back then, but I think back to 2008, 2009, the economy was not like that. No. <laughs> and it's funny because you said, like, it looked like everybody was in Lakeside. Well, last night I went down to Little Italy, and I was thinking the same thing. I Traffic was terrible. I mean, it took me forever to find a parking spot. Then mm-hmm. the restaurants are packed with people, no place to sit. I mean, now this is only San Diego, but I don't think we're exclusive to the country. Uh, I believe there's other places probably are even more congested than what we have here, but the consumer is still spending and they're spending on certain things. They have stopped spending uh, on getting furniture and, and um, PVs. TVs. Yeah, TV, they got enough TVs now, but they are really doing service spending is what they're actually doing. And that's gonna keep the economy growing. So the consumer, I believe, will keep on, on spending. Uh, they still got that job. A job report comes out on Friday. Probably the Jolts report comes out. I'm gonna say Tuesday or Wednesday. Can't wait to see that. Yeah, it should be should be coming up soon. Yeah, and and, and people, if you want to know what that is, quickly we will 
write it. We'll actually put it in our newsletter. Newsletter goes out on, on Friday, so you get that uh, Friday at 5 o'clock. But uh, we will be reporting on the Chelsea report. I think it's going to be about the same. I don't see much changes to it. Uh, but big week this week on, on uh, employment, which is going to tell us what consumer spending is going to be doing. Yeah, no, so, I was trying to find when the, the next one is. So, Well, I know it always comes out before the jobs report comes out. That comes out on Friday. Um, yeah, because the last month it came out on April 4th. So I, oh, it came after. Well, no, the last month it was something strange with the jobs report. It's, it's May 2nd is the, the release of the jobs. So it does come out before the jobs report. The JOLTS report will be on, I think that's Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday. So so we'll see if that looks at it. And I love that JOLTS report. And when you combine that with... Uh, the, the employment report, you really got a good picture of what's going on with the... Because uh, it also includes layoffs in that JOLTS report yeah. as well. So yeah. it's not just job openings, but it shows you the amount of people quitting and then also to right. the, the layoffs, which is, again, the headline, oh, I saw another one. Tech companies continue to to to, to, to destroy jobs, right. essentially. And uh, I think it was Dropbox was laying off like 500 employees. Right. Like, we talk about an economy that has... Uh, 1.7 million layoffs. <laughs> it's 500. It's like yeah, a, not, e- not even a drop in the bucket. It's, it's a mist. Yeah, <laughs> not, not even. Uh, but again, we'll we'll kind of look at that. And the other thing too that we 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 look at when new clients or potential clients are coming in because we're we're concerned the concern on investing uh, with the economy. Now we show them this report. We can't do it on radio because you can't see it. Uh, but a trend line of the layoffs and oh yeah, and they are ticking up but still not anywhere near what the average has been for, what's that graph go for, 20, 30 years, I think? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. so it's just, um, and, and that's why we remain optimistic, why we continue to invest. Um, and, and, and I just think it's funny, I, there, there was economists, uh, many economists, I, I think I highlight here, many, many economists expect the economy to slow even more as the year progresses, predicting a recession in the second half of the year as the Federal Reserve continues its campaign to cool the economy. I just don't see how that can happen if the consumer continues to spend when they have a job. Inventories are way down. They've got to be replaced. I, I, I just don't see a recession coming. And, uh, and that, we're not alone in that, but there's other economists. And the ones who get most notoriety, the ones that are predicting the recession. Yeah. They, don't want, they don't want people to say, oh, everything's going to be fine. They want to hear the negative. No, sorry, I don't well, see the negative. I tell people, too, is... I, I still think we we could have a recession just because of, you know, you could technically, and in and, and theory we had a recession a couple of years ago, but I still yeah. don't know if it was marked as a recession <clears throat> or maybe it wasn't a couple of years, maybe that was last year when we had two first, consecutive quarters. First quarter and second quarter of uh, 2022. So it was last year. It was last year. So I don't know if they have come out yet, if they have classified that as a recession or not, but that, that's the technical definition. And I think we could see another technical definition of a recession where we do have two declining quarters of GDP. It just it just could happen because right. the thing you got to remember too is the GDP, when we talk about a 1.1% growth, very important. That's on a real basis. What that means, that accounts for inflation. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, yeah, we only grew 1%, but inflation was 5%. It's like, no, that's after the inflation adjustment. Right. So that's an important distinction you have to understand. And that's why I think we could see a recession because, again, we'll, we'll talk about this here shortly on the inflation front. But I, I think that, yeah, maybe the real side contracts slightly for two quarters and maybe it contracts by half a percent and then maybe 0.6% to... Well, that's technically a recession. Yeah, yeah. The technicality, we could have one that way, but you won't really feel it yeah. <clears throat> unless you're one of the persons that got laid off and didn't get another job. And so. the problem is people hear recession, they think 2008, <clears throat> 2009. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to inflation because a positive news on inflation front as a Fed's preferred measure, PCE, 
uh, registered a year-over-year increase of 4.2%. This compares to last month's reading of 5.1%. Energy costs were a major benefit in the report as they were down 9.8% compared to last year. Now, critics will point to the core PCE, which actually include, ex- excludes, not includes, excludes, food and energy. It came in at 4.6% above expectations of 4.5% and barely below last month's reading of 4.7%. So people say, oh, inflation's more sticky. But with that said, I, I continue to believe that energy is a core part of costs for businesses. And with the leveling off in energy prices, I believe core inflation will continue to subside through the remainder of the year. Overall, I believe this was a good report as it actually continues to show inflation moving lower. And it's so funny. Sometimes people, they want to include energy, but they don't want to include energy. And, it, you know, I think you have to look at both numbers. But again, understand that if you're a business and you have to have products transported to you, well, those transportation companies had to increase their costs because they had to pay more for diesel and fuel. Well, if that price levels off, now they can perhaps not increase their prices more level off those prices. Now we're not seeing that increase in cost. Businesses then don't have to increase their costs as much to offset the increase in transportation costs. So as long as we have a leveling off in energy prices, they don't even necessarily have to decline much further. Just leveling off, I I think you'll see a lot of benefits on the inflation front. And they they want to back it out because they say they're volatile. They go up and down from month to month. But I think when you read the report, you understand that because you're so, so right that yeah, energy is up. You're running a, a trucking business. Your costs are up. You're going to raise your prices. So I I, I don't like taking it out. <clears throat> we, we announce it because a lot of people do. But I think you have to understand, yeah, it's volatile, but it can benefit you. And then you have to look at, too, what's going on down the road. I mean, we know that OPEC did cut their production, but we have increased production here. So we don't see oil going up dramatically. Um, so I think it is a positive, and I like looking at that. And by the way, PCE stands for Personal Consumption Expenditures. Yes. Yes. So I want to make sure we, we explain that. I always hate when people use terms, terms. like, well, what, what's that stand for? So I want to make sure we, we got that out of people. Yeah, I was just <clears throat> in writing mode yesterday. when I know. And if people ask, do you guys actually write these posts? Yeah, these are actually our personal. We don't have somebody else that writes this for us. Yeah. This is actually our content that, that we produce. And, I mean, obviously we use the reports and we don't make up the data. But right. <laughs> we use that data to provide our opinion. And I, I just think it is so interesting as well on the inflation side because last year when they were talking about this transitory inflation, I, I looked at the energy front and I, 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 I was thinking to myself, I said, well, if energy maintains these high, there's no way inflation is going to fall yeah. off a cliff because these businesses can't afford to pay all these costs with higher energy prices because it's not just transportation. The other thing that I, I guess is a potential concern is that electricity costs have actually been growing at like 10 13% a year. That costs more to businesses as well. So, yeah. I mean, there's <clears throat> there are some things within there that, that could make inflation, so to speak, more sticky. But I think if we get inflation perhaps around three, three and a half percent, like I said, I think uh, last week or the week before was, you know, I think the Fed needs to kind of think about that as well as it's an inflation around three percent. Is it worth it to try and destroy the economy to try and get inflation lower to two percent? I mean, yeah, we can't have inflation at five percent. That's going to destroy more people. But right. perhaps there is a, a balance balancing act that the Fed can have here. And, and what could happen, because uh, I, f- I think this week is one of the Fed meets, and I think, uh, is it this week? This week or next week? Next week, yeah. yeah. Or, coming up in a week or two. Yeah. Uh, I, I think they'll probably increase a quarter of a point. 
Yeah. Then the next time they meet, they'll have another inflation report. Now, now we said that the PCE registered a year-over-year increase of 4.2%. I think it's possible we could see a number with a three in front of it. Yeah. 3.8, 3.9. I think that will change the Fed saying, you know what? Let's watch and see what happens now mm-hmm. because we are trending down. And they know if they go too much, they will put us into a deep recession and all of a sudden they can't stop it. So let's see how smart they are. And hopefully they know better than they were a couple of years ago with the transitory inflation. That was last year, which is crazy. Last year? Yeah, yeah, beginning of last year, I guess. Yeah, beginning of last year. Because yeah. they started their hiking campaign. No, actually, was, I'm wrong. It was last year. 2021. Yeah. I got, gosh, time just goes too quick. I, too I'm quick. getting confused on the years over here. Yeah, wait till you get older. Gosh, it it quicker. <laughs> you know, so, but um, yeah, so, so I, I, I think we could see <clears throat> about a month from now, the, the PCE with a three in front of it, which I think that will be enough to, for the Fed to say, hey, we're close. Let's slow down. Let's back off and see what happens. Not not decrease rates, but just hold them as they are. So. Yeah. I and mean, I think we talked about it last week, but I think that would be a serious mistake. And I think the market's pricing in a Fed cut, I, I think that's where you, you could have a, a 1970s type situation where you underestimate how quickly inflation come back because you stoke demand before the supply chain is ready. Right. Yeah, we're gonna have inflation pop back up. So I, I think just, just, I, I, I don't think we need the quarter pike hike increase, but I also think if they do it, I think they need to keep it for probably about a year. Right. And, and, and I, the reason I think they'll do it is it won't hurt that much, and I think it keeps them on track. Yeah. So that, that's why I think there will be one, but it's not gonna be a major like, oh my god, yeah, you know, it's it's gonna be enough, and I. Hope it's uh, one and done, as I kind of call it. And I, I do want to say as well on that <clears throat> supply chain front, right? Is if we can get the supply side fixed, then I I think the Fed would be okay to maybe start decreasing interest rates, and they're not going to go back to zero or one or two, but you know maybe we we get back in the four percent range perhaps, and that's on the Fed's funds rate. Now, should it decrease mortgages and other things as well? But if we can get the supply side fixed then you can have demand come in because then you won't have the same inflation concerns because you're able to kind of have a more balanced economy. But if we don't get the supply side fixed and then we stoke demand, that's exactly what happened when we had inflation on the, the CPI of what, 8 9%, I think it was. I mean, right. that that's why I'm saying I, I don't think they need to cut rates this year. I think it would be, and again, the same thing happened in the 70s where yeah. inflation was there and then they, they started kind of tightening and then they, they went back and then we had a decade-long period where inflation was terrible right and and also we have to look on this friday when the jobs report comes out is wage uh, wages mm-hmm. I, I think they are slowing down as well which would be another positive and i i don't know if we have time to get to it today but there was actually the feds more measured or more looked at report for employment costs it only comes out quarterly we did write something on that We'll see if we get time to do that one. Yep. So let's, let's move on. And uh, oh, and by the way, let's uh, open the phone lines for your questions. 833-288-0973. You got questions on investing, questions on an equity that you hold, looking at buying. Uh, that's what we're here for, that unbiased, no strings attached, fundamental opinion about what you want to talk about. 833-288-0973. Uh, I continue to say I do not see how we would have any type of meaningful recession or perhaps even a recession at all. I have pointed out how strong the job market is and that when people have a job, they will not pull back dramatically on their spending. Another reason why I do not see a major recession coming is because of what's known as the M2 money supply. The M2 money supply is virtually all the liquid money in the economy. That includes short-term CDs, 
checking accounts, savings, and money markets. It, and it has pulled back from the peak one year ago of $21.6 trillion to a current level of $21.1 trillion, but continued to compare that data to the great economy that we had back in 2019 before COVID. And on December 31st of 2019, the M2 money supply was $15.3 trillion. So again, here we sit with anybody that wants a job, can get one, and liquid money in the economy, again, roughly around $6 trillion more than what we had in 2019. Again, a good economy back then. Have to ask, how in the world could we have a major recession with so many people working and so much available money? Have you seen what the media did on this? Uh, and this is why yep. we did this. They, they took... They didn't go back to 2019. Yep. They're just showing people like, oh, see, the money supply is declining. This is terrible. This is terrible. And I saw somebody say, too, it was like the first contraction in like a couple of decades or something. Right. But again, the thing you have to we had never seen an expansion <laughs> of that, that magnitude. Yep. And it, it's the same thing with the personal savings rate. It's the same thing with the mm -hmm. layoffs. You had this extreme situation where they spiked one way and then they kind of had to come back. So it's, it's more of an adjustment to get back on track rather than a, again, dire situation here. Right. And, and I think this is one of the and this is why people need to get the newsletter, because, you know, we are talking about it here now, but you have the newsletter. It's in writing. You won't forget it. But I, I was just very disappointed. And again, they are trying to sell commercials. They're trying to sell advertising to really get people's attention. But it is so wrong because you picked out a point in time, as you said, the highest peak we had in, in the money supply because of COVID. Well, yeah, of course you're going to have a, the, the worst decline. But when you average it out or just go back to 2019, just four years ago, like, holy Toledo. I mean, we, we've got $4 trillion, $5 trillion more in, in the economy. That, that's huge, and, and, and that, that no one else has brought that out that I can see. And the thing that I think you have to understand here is during COVID, I mean, people were scared. They didn't, yeah. and it was the wrong thing to do 100%, <laughs> but they left too much money in cash and savings, and but they didn't know what was going to happen, so they had all this liquid money. And if you look again, not even back to 2019, but you look at a long-term chart for the M2 money supply. I mean, you just see it's kind of going along at an even pace, we'll call it. And all of a sudden, and during COVID, it just spikes up yep. tremendously. And we had never seen an expansion like that in the money supply. So, of course, we essentially, and kind of use this back in the financial crisis, but we kind of borrowed from the future there, essentially. Mm -hmm. So now we need that money supply to kind of, honestly, contracting wouldn't be that bad. Because, quite frankly, we don't need to have that much money in money markets and liquid accounts we want that capital in the economy working, you know, actually going towards capital expenditures for right. businesses, investments to help grow the economy. Just having $21 trillion in money markets, savings, checking accounts, that capital is not being utilized and moved around the economy in an efficient manner. And, and that's the big positive is that that will be uh, eventually used for, cap for more capital expansion and so forth, which will help which people are missing out. And, and when people, when that's coming down, it's actually a positive, it is being spent. So, it, and the point being, we got a lot more spending to do. And when you look at just even one more trillion dollars, bring it down below 20 trillion, still above the 16 trillion we had back in 2019, that's $1 trillion more in the economy being spent. Uh, how can you have a recession? Yeah. I, I just I don't just, get it. Yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense. And I mean, it, it comes back to, again, I, I remember getting into a discussion with a gentleman on Facebook about, you know, he's like, oh, the personal savings rate, all right, this is terrible. 
and it, it was the personal savings rate had dropped to historic low levels. Right. But you looked at the personal savings rate during COVID, it was like 20, 30 <laughs> percent. I mean, it spiked up. So then you had all this liquidity and people, people don't necessarily always look at just their income and match that. I mean, let's say you have just very simply, you have like $200,000 in, in your savings account, but let's say you make $5,000 a month. Well, you're like, ah, I can spend $7,000 on going on a vacation this month. I got 2000 in cash. Right. You know, so it, it's not always just the income part of the equation. It's how much money do you have set aside in savings? And that's what happened here. So that's why the personal savings rate ticked down so substantially. But if you actually look at the personal savings rate, that's actually starting to come back now. And it's well off the lows where it was at. It's still not where we were back pre-COVID, but it's it's working its way back towards that level. And, and this these are things that people have to focus on because what's going to start coming up, I mean, what, Monday's May 1st, I believe. Yeah. Um, then, then we can say, okay, well, now next month we got the debt ceiling crisis coming up. I believe that's going to start taking uh, a center stage there. Mm-hmm. We talked about ripples in the market. Um, and I forget the number. Over the last, what, 23 years, it's been raised 22 times or some crazy number like that. Yeah. I, I, I don't think this is going to be the time they're not going to do it. They, they will do it. You're going to have all the, you know, the Republicans, the president, uh, back and forth, back and forth. And when it's all said and done, and, and, and it's never going to be done early. No. They will wait to the very last minute to do it because nobody wants to give up on a negotiation, you know, so it will happen the last minute. So, but it's going to cause turmoil. Yep. But focus on these things, on the economy, the jobs, everything else. Forget about the noise you're going to hear on that. Could create some good buying opportunities. I I think it could be happening. Oh, I I think so as well. I mean, I, I think it's, again, something that has been proven over time. And, you know, the Republicans, the president, the Democrats, Nobody wants to default on our debt. No, no, nobody wants that. It's just a matter of, you know, I think personally, I think it's also a political ploy, essentially, yeah. where the Republicans can come back and say, yeah, we, we tried, but you know, we ultimately we couldn't default on our debt. And the Democrats are like, no, we, we, we fought for what we believe in. Right. But ultimately, we can't default on our debt. So right. I think it, it gives them, especially going into an election year. It gives them some kind of marketing material of why they should get some votes next year. It's like, we tried, but we couldn't do it because of, you know, the other side. And it's, you know, I think politics is fascinating, but sometimes, gosh, I just hate it. because Frustrating. It's, yeah. it's frustrating. And, and what's going to happen is that they'll probably cut spending a little bit. They will increase the limit yep. a little bit, you know, and, and then we'll be dealing with this probably another two years down the road <laughs> with a different president, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, not not predicting political <laughs> things. And I just realized a different yeah. president. Maybe, maybe we'll have the same president. I don't know. I'm not going to make predictions on that. Uh, phone numbers again, 833-288-0973. That's 833-288-0973. Uh, another way to ask a question if you don't want to come on air is you can actually send a question to our website, uh, smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com. You can send it to myself or Chase. We did receive a question here from Ron. He says, I listen to your show every every week and appreciate your advice. I know an individual stock is rated as a buy, hold, or sell that you would be only interested in purchasing a stock with a buy rating. Assuming that at any given time there are many stocks with a buy rating, once you own a stock and it's gone from a buy to a hold, why wouldn't you sell and purchase a buy rated stock? In other words, as long as you are able to find a buy rated stock you don't already own, why would you continue to hold a hold rated stock? 
this is a, a, a thing that people have dealt with for many years because you look at those analysts, and, and I, I've never seen anybody do this study, but I'm pretty sure, I think I did, no, this was on Morningstar ratings, where if you only did five-star ratings, your, your performance yeah. was terrible. Um, no one that I've ever seen has done one if you do what Ron is talking about here because I think your performance would be bad because also there's many different ways to come out with the buy rating. It could be on fundamentals. It could be on momentum. It could be on technicals. It could be on many different factors. You don't know what you're really looking at. And to just do what you're, you're thinking there, Ron, you can miss some great opportunities. And even ourselves, where we use our, our fundamentals as far as saying when, a, when a, uh, equity gets to 16.6 times earnings, we do sell and, and get out of it. It can many times continue to go on. Many times these guys have the holds on them. And, and what am I looking at right here? Uh, this is, oh, uh, Wells Fargo for some reason popped up. Uh, it does have a, what is the rating on it here? Um, well, eight, buy. yeah, it's, it's about, yeah, buy, uh, eight strong buy, two buy, six hold, uh, no sales, no strong sales. We're going to talk about that as well, but you've got to understand what that's coming from. And we don't look at what the analysts say at all about the buy, sell, hold. We use the analysts to look at what numbers they come up with because I, I'm pretty confident of this and it's never, studies never been done that if you were to try to do that where a stock is no longer ready to buy and you sell it and buy another buy stock, you could be actually buying high and selling low is what I think could happen. And, and the the big reason I think we, because we do it as well, we have companies that are buys and then yeah. sometimes they get moved into our hold category. And the reason we continue to hold it, and, and many times what we'll do too, is if it does become a larger percentage of the portfolio, we will sell some of it, mm -hmm. but selling all of it sometimes, number one, can create some tax complications. Number two, it doesn't mean it's a bad business, and it's just that we want to be a little bit patient with it. And guess what? If it does pull back by, let's say, maybe 5% even, well, now it's back on the buy list. Yeah. And it, if you start playing this game of selling things that become holds and then trying to buy buys... It, it becomes overcomplicated, and I'm going to steal your thunder here, but essentially what happens is you're getting involved in more trading, and you read this great thing about <laughs> I know, investing. I, I know it's going to steal on me. Go ahead. <laughs> investing is like a bar of soap. The more you use it, the smaller it gets, yeah. and it's the same concept here. If you all of a sudden you're, you're selling things and getting the hold, and then it's like, well, now, now you start to wonder, well, okay, well, now my hold, because what we do is if our company is, let's say, within 30% of its target sell price, that's what's our in our hold category. Right. Well, oh, my gosh, now it's it's 35% away from its target sell price. Well, now should I sell it here? I mean, you really start to change your discipline, and then you get involved in more trading, which is not what you want to do when you invest. And the other thing, too, is that we do, you know, read, listen to the conference calls, look at the financial statements, and a company could slip into the whole category. But based on what we saw or read or heard about that quarterly uh, conference or what they said going forward, like, no, we don't want to sell that company because we do see other things going that are going to be more positive. But you got to be patient with investing. And, and, and that's the main key is that you are. And when I designed this system that we have, I don't know, 30 years ago, um, I wanted to have a system that would keep me invested and only pull me out of a, a, an equity if it really was going to be a bad buy. Yep. Because as we said, that bar soap, long-term investing, you should not be doing a lot of changing. It's not going to work. So when I designed the system, it's like I wanted a system that kept me in invested as opposed to do a lot of trading because I knew that would not work well. And yeah, and, and you mentioned it perfectly. Many times an equity that we have will go from a buy to a hold 
And then maybe two months, three months later, oh, well, now it's back on the buy list because maybe the stock pulled back or perhaps earnings came out, earnings went up. So, y y yeah, you, you've got to be a long-term investor. And I think if you try to move too quickly, your performance will be terrible. And, and I think the issue here is, I mean, don't get me wrong here. If, yeah, 100%, yeah, we should have sold it and then bought it back again when it fell 5%. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> you make more money doing that. But that, again, gets you in this trading mindset. And I would love to sit here and tell you that I that I know that it's going to pull back 5 I don't. It could go 10% higher. And then people well, why didn't you hold it until it went yeah. out of the 10%? And so that's why we keep it in the hold category. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and you just have to kind of look at things. I mean, what we're looking at, and we're thrilled when we average 10 12% on average per year over, over years. That's what, that's what our goal is. Um, we're not guaranteeing that. Not, by the no, way. I, well, I said our goal. Yeah. So I think yeah. we're saying yeah. <laughs> um, that's what we're shooting for. And, and the thing is, that's how you do it is by being a long-term investor, staying with the companies, collecting the dividends. But there are times to sell to companies uh, that things do fall apart or they do become way overpriced. And it's like, nah, time, time to get out. But but we do, we, we tell people when they come in, we probably do on average maybe four transactions a year. I mean, that's about what we do. We, we don't like to touch that soap too often. It's very slippery. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, it is truly slippery yeah. though, because it, as I said, if you, when it comes to investing, you need a strategy. You need a discipline. And yeah. the moment you start to bend that strategy, you start to bend that discipline, you have no discipline at all. Right. And all of a sudden now, what are you going to do? What's what's leading you to make your investing decisions? And, and it's, again, a slippery slope here essentially yeah. is you have no understanding of why you're making money, why you're losing money. It's it's a dangerous path, and that's why people aren't successful investing long-term is many times they don't have strategies. Yeah, and and, and what I look at, uh, again, is trying to stay on track. And, and I, I say I'm wrong a third of the time, and I know that. And I try to be right 100% of the time. Same thing with the ball player. I mean, every time he gets out of bat, he's going to try to hit that ball. But he knows he's not going to every time. What, what's a great betting average? Three hundred. Three hundred. Yeah. So that means uh, less than a third. Less than a third. Yeah. A bat ten times, you're going to hit that ball three times. But you can still do very well, and that's what you have to realize. But you have to strive every time to do that. And if you get yourself off that track, you know, and and thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'm I'm not doing well. I'm going to quit. Like, well, no, you can't quit because you're still doing very well. We use a baseball analogy. 300 batting average. Wow. You, you're in the papers. Well, and you say 300. I mean, we're talking about batting even 600, 700. Yeah. yeah I, wow. I mean, because I think I said, we do better than a 300 batting average right, yeah. on investing. <laughs> yeah. I, I think if we didn't, we wouldn't. If we but, did a 300 batting average, I don't think we'd be in business. We, we wouldn't be managing a half billion dollars. <laughs> but the, the point is, is it overemphasizes the fact that you're still going to have errors. You're still going to have mistakes. You're still going to have investments that didn't go according to plan. That's just the reality of investing. And if you, you think you're going to be perfect and you try and make too many perfect decisions, then you're going to be sitting in cash and never investing. And then 10 years will pass and you'll be like, made no money. Right. And and every time you're wrong, you, you got to look at, well, what went wrong with that? And I always love how uh, you, you bring up uh, my thing on Office Depot years ago. <laughs> how I was wrong because I didn't think about looking at the stores nationwide. I was just looking at that they were really in what California and Florida during 2008 and they just got hammered because those areas had big real estate things. And it's like, that's what I missed. So we learned from that. Now, after that, we look at saying we've got to look at the nationwide situation that, 
you know, if they have stores nationwide, what areas are they in? So you learn from it, but you still know that you're going to make mistakes going forward. And once you do that, and the other thing too, you cannot do, we're going to way off track here, then we're going to cut it off, is that you, you cannot say, well, I'm just going to wait till it gets back to what I paid for it, then I'm going to sell. The market does not know what you paid for that. <laughs> cut your losses, make the sale, you made a mistake, get out of it. So, Ron, I, I want to thank you Thank you for that question because it was a good question. I think a lot of people have that uh, question there. Uh, again, if you want to ask a question, uh, you know, uh, don't want to come on air for the show, but want to ask a question uh, through our, our website, go to smartinvesting2000.com. That's smartinvesting2000.com and send myself, uh, Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey, a question. We'll read it on here. I know we have a lot of people listen by podcast as well that probably want their questions answered. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. So, all right. Uh, phone numbers here are 833 288 That's 833-288-0973. Uh, Russell, I'll see you on hold there. Please hold with us because uh, we do want to talk to Harrison Johnson. I got to ask him these questions here. So, uh, Harrison, good morning. How you doing? Good morning, guys. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Good, good. And by the way, I didn't mention that uh, you're our CFP, our financial planner here on on uh, Wilson Asset Management. Uh, I I got when I saw your topic, change is coming to mortgages. Oh, what are you talking about here? Please <laughs> explain what's what changes are coming on. So there's been some changes made by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are agencies that make rules for pricing conventional mortgages and. These changes are going into effect on May 1st, which is Monday. So we're just about there. Um, so, um, so there are these things called LLPAs or loan level price adjustments. And when you get a mortgage, there's a lot of factors that go into the rate that you get. Things like size of the loan, how much your down payment is, the value of your home that you're buying, your credit score, your income, the type of home that you're buying, all influence the rate that you're going to get. So when a loan is priced, it starts with a default rate, and then these LLPAs or extra costs are added to that rate based on how risky the borrowing situation is. So because of these changes that are coming, some more qualified or less risky borrowers are getting additional fees added to their loans and less qualified or more risky borrowers are getting a reduction in their fees. Now, this is not the same as saying that more qualified buyers are going to pay higher fees than less qualified buyers. It's just the spread between the two is now a whole lot less. So, for example, a qualified buyer before these changes maybe had um, you know these LLPA fees of a half a percent added to their loan and now because of these changes it went from a half a percent up to one and a quarter percent added to their, their costs and a less preferred borrower maybe used to have fees of 2.75 percent and now it's only 1.875 percent or, or something along those lines there's a whole matrix that has updated fees based on your credit score and your loan to value so it's still better to you know, have a higher credit score and a larger down payment, but after these adjustments, it's just not as important. So um, I want to point out these fees aren't just you know, added straight to the mortgage rate. They kind of flow through the rate. So, for example, a, a preferred borrower with a good down payment with an $800,000 loan, maybe because of these changes, now going to have an extra $80 a month. Um, you know, on their mortgage payment because of this this adjustment. So it's something to be aware of. It's going into effect, like I said, on Monday. 
um, more qualified more qualified buyers have more fees and less qualified buyers are having a reduction in their fees. And, and you know, here's something. I listen to your talk here. Eighty dollars a month. People are saying, ah, you know, what's the big deal? You know, my, my mortgage is four thousand. It's not really going to hurt. But when I multiply that out for the year, uh, you're talking about a thousand dollars a year or more. Where there's a lot I can do with a thousand dollars. So uh, it yep. also worries me too. Are we helping people get a loan that maybe should not be getting a loan that can't afford afford it? Like back in the subprime days, back in 2008, and caused mm -hmm. all those problems. Where now you're getting people that, and I know everybody wants to help people out, get a home, and so forth. But you hate to get people in a situation that they're over their head. And then they default. I mean, it, it, I, I, that's what concerns me about doing things like this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, that, that's exactly the point to bring up, Brandon. And then in addition to that, what I think is interesting is that these these rules are coming into place just applied to conventional and refinance loans that are purchased by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So what that means is it does not apply to FHA, VA, USDA uh, type mortgages and it's typically more common if you have a lower credit score or a lower down payment for you to go the FHA side. Um, so if that's the direction that you're going, you're not even benefiting from these adjustments, but more qualified buyers still use a conventional loan. And so they're, you know, they're getting hurt by this. So it's, it, you know, the, the idea is to try and help um, make housing more affordable, but the people that it's helping potentially aren't even going to benefit from it. And then the other people that are more qualified who are still, you know, even if you're more qualified, it doesn't mean that, you know, home prices are, you know, low or their mortgage <laughs> rates are low. So it's still <laughs> difficult to buy a house. And so now it's making it more difficult for people that are going to go on that that loan side. And I will say as well is the, the big thing I kind of see, and, uh, you know, people pointed out, again, on, on the right, you know, they, they play this political game, is, oh, you know, people are going to be able to, it has nothing to do with the qualifications. Right. If you can't qualify for that mortgage, Today, you won't be able to qualify for that mortgage on May 2nd. Right. So the nice thing is they're right. not like giving away. You still have to meet that qualification amount, which should help prevent something like a 2008, 2009. But um, it's just it's funny to me that essentially they're driving up the cost and it's probably just going to go to the government because <laughs> the people that may utilize it don't even use it. So it's, and, and, yeah, and, and I, I want to summarize and be clear. So if you have a good credit score, you should not de destroy your credit score yeah. to, to get this uh, extra money. Correct. 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 <laughs> yeah, it, it's still it's still better to you know, have a good credit score. You get a better rate. It's just you know your your rate difference between yourself and now you know someone with a lower credit score and a lower down payment. Now it's just not that much better. And. and and again, just to be sure, it's it's not on VA loans. There's certain loans that you won't pay this extra. So somebody shopping for a home and a mortgage, they'll make sure that they get the ones that are not uh, having this extra fee on them. And what were those again? Um, so FHA, VA, USDA, and um, HUD Section 184 mortgages. So the more common one are FHA and VA. You know, those are those are fairly common. Right. So that those types of lo loans are not going to have any type of influence from this adjustment. The adjustment is just on conventional and then refinances um, that are on the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac side. Yeah, and I, I want to be <laughs> clear. Is, I want to be go ahead, Harrison. Actually, I was to say, you know, if you go to Wells Fargo and get a loan, or if you talk to your, you know, if you have a mortgage broker um, and, and you get a loan through, you know, on the brokerage side, those types of loans are, are will be influenced by this. 
Yeah. And I, I wanted to say real quick, just to kind of emphasize, because it, it is a confusing matter where you said people with good credit scores, the formula is like uh, it was, let's say, half percent. Now it's one and a quarter percent. That doesn't mean if you have a five percent mortgage, your mortgage is now going to be five point seven five percent. It's a formula that's used. So I want to make sure people understand. It's like, wow, that's just crazy. <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah, a formula. Right, yeah, it's exactly. not an increase by 0.75%. And, and Harrison, so people right. go in and they talk to the mortgage broker. What is a term they would say that say, I don't want this on my mortgage. What is a term they would say to tell the broker that? What is this called? <laughs> is there a name um, for it? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if there's, a way that you can avoid it. I mean, you can say, I want to look at the FHA loan or the, you know, if, if you're a military, you can look at the VA side, but virtually every other loan is going to have these adjustments in it. So it's not something that you can necessarily opt out of. I, I, I guess what you can say is like, are there any adjustments to my loan that I need to know about? Uh, and please explain. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good way. And so, yeah. like I said, there's a whole matrix of different costs and so one thing i think would be helpful if you're looking at loans is you might want to take a look at that you, you can go on the fannie mae or freddie uh, mac website and they publish these and so you know you can look at for example say okay well if your loan to value ratio is 75 to 80 percent and your credit score is between 720 and 739 you know this is your your rate adjustment and then if you have a higher down payment or different loan to value ratio um, or a different credit score, it's all different. So it, it might be helpful to look at that matrix and that could influence um, the down payment that you make in addition to the other costs that you'd be subject to when you're when you're looking at a loan. Well, Harrison, that's a very helpful to people that are buying a home. So thank you very much and uh, you have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday morning. All right, thanks guys. We'll see you Monday. Okay, bye-bye. Again, as Harrison Johnson, he's our financial planner, he's a CFP. Uh, he is on a salary. He does not try to sell you annuities or life insurance. His job is to actually do a financial plan for you and point out things like he just did on the mortgage and so forth. So if you want a free consultation with him, go to our website, smartinvesting2000.com. Again, that's smartinvesting2000.com. You can also call the office at 858-546-4306. That's 8585464306. All right, let's get back to our phones here. Uh phone number is here 8332880973. That's 8332880973. That's promise going to go out to San Diego and speak with Russell. Russell, you're on the Smart Investing show with Brent Chase. How can we help you? Yeah, hey, thanks for taking my call. I was uh, Lumen Technologies. Um, what your thought? I know it's come down a lot. Um, I was in uh, mainly for the dividends for the long haul, and then they took away the dividends, and then the stock pretty much crashed. Um, I never did sell, and I'm wondering if it's time to uh, buy more to try and recoup or um, just hold and wait it out. All right. Well, let's take a look at Lumen Technologies. Their symbol is L-U-M-N. They are in the telecom service industry. Not a good start here, Russell. The short ratio on it is 17%. So a lot of people are shorting the stock, expecting it to fall further. Institutional ownership is 82%. Uh, we do not see a P.E. ratio. That's the same as for the industry. Price to sales, very low, 0.1 versus 1.3. Price to book value, 0.2 versus 1.7. There is no price to tangible book value. But 0.2 in the book value means you're paying 20 cents on the dollar for the assets. That could be a positive, but you want to make sure that the company can make it. 
Uh, no earnings growth. Sales are down 9.6% uh, over the past year. Uh, the industry is up 0.4. Uh, you're correct. No dividend. Uh, we do see on the balance sheet here, you got a current ratio of 1.1. That is better than the industry at 0.9, so it shows some liquidity. But debt to equity is 2 versus the same, well, same as the industry. We don't like a company with a debt to equity over, I'd say, 1.4 is where you get a little bit nervous. Uh, we do see a net profit margin, negative 8.9 versus a positive 5.4. Return on equity, a negative 14.8 versus a positive 7.6. Uh, I'm not seeing much here. That's uh, I'm going to tell you to even hold on right now. My point, I think, is about a sell. But, Chase, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, again, the current price for this company, as you point out, Russell, it has fallen quite dramatically. The current price, $2.37, 52-week high, $12.00. And fifty four cents. So I mean, it's just been crushed in the the low right around there, two dollars and six cents. Year to date, the stock is down fifty four point six percent. I mean, the company's still got a market cap of two point three billion dollars, so it's it's a decent sized business there, obviously. But yeah, it's it's just getting absolutely crushed. I I do look forward though to December two thousand twenty four, and I see estimated earnings per share of twenty nine cents. Now that's a, a positive. They have positive earnings, and it does give us a target sell price of four dollars and eighty one cents. So that looks very attractive. But the problem with this here is this year, the company is still estimated to have profits, which is positive, but they're estimated to fall 78.2%. Then next year in 2024, it's estimated to fall another 14%. And then there's less analysts in 2025, but there's still five of them. Then they estimate earnings per share of 14 cents, another 50% fall. So there's something going on with this business that and, is very and Jay, troubling. And you're saying that each year they're falling? Yes. Okay, yeah, because I, I was also looking at the analyst estimates from 90 days ago. You're not looking at that. No, I'm not looking at 90 days ago. I'm looking at year by year. So 2023, it's $0.34, cents, which is a 78% fall. 2024, it's $0.29, cents, which is a 14% fall. There's eight analysts in 2024, though. 2025, there's still five analysts, mm -hmm. but they're projecting 14 cents, which would be another 50% fall from 2024. So earnings are just getting crushed on this business. And, and the thing I kind of noticed too, and my earnings are a little bit different because I use a, a different one that, than you're using, but I do see the lowest amount for 2023. Somebody says they're going to lose 61 cents. 2024, somebody says it's going to lose 16 cents. And over the past 90 days, those estimates are down 75%. They were as high as 73. So they're falling dramatically. So there's something negative going on with this company uh, that is not good. And uh, another point of concern here as well is on that, that price to book value. So it's point two. That's very attractive. But I did see a warning sign here on Goodwill. Goodwill made up, it looked like around 28% yeah. of their assets. And if they're having a problem with a business that they acquired and that's not generating the cash flow and that's the reason for it, they're going to have to write down goodwill. All of a sudden, that price to book value is no longer attractive anymore because, well, you had to write that off and the immaterial um, or the intangible assets on the balance sheet are, are very, very high. Once you write all those off, the company has no tangible equity. Yeah. So, uh, Russell, I, 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 I know you're weighed down on it. I mean, the stock's at $2 a share. I don't see any reason to hold on to it. Is this in a retirement account or uh, just a regular account? It's just a regular account. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I had bought, you know, over over time. It was mainly because of the dividends, usually about 8 to 12% a year. Yeah. Is why I had it. And, and, and I mean, and it could turn around, go back up. I mean, but based on, and I always look at it, if you were coming to us as a client, you said what we would do, we would say, we're going to sell this company, take the tax loss <clears throat> because it just doesn't look like it's going to, you know, 
turn things around. And we and there's one that that we held years ago, Bed Bath and Beyond. We sold it at a much much higher price than now. We did take a loss on it, but we said nope, this company's not going the right direction. I think it was this past week they did say yes, we're filing for bankruptcy. So you'd hate to wait three four years, and that's dead money. Yeah. And then three years from now, yep, they're bankrupt. I should have sold it. Sometimes you got to move on and and just say yeah, that was a mistake. I lost money. Uh, I'm going to get out of it because you hate to play that pray and hope game. And actually, here's something I hardly ever see. Four analysts give this a strong sell. <laughs> so you hardly ever see that. So even the analysts are saying get out of it. So um, yeah, I, I, my recommendation is to sell it, uh, take the losses, and, and uh, look for a better fundamentally strong company. All righty? All righty. Thank you so much. Okay, Russell, thanks for calling. Have a good one. All right. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that opens the phone line, 833 833- Two eight eight zero nine seven three. That's eight three three two eight eight zero nine seven three. Let's go out to San Diego and speak with Anthony. Anthony, you're on the Smart Investing Show. Brent Chase, how can we help you? Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I'd like to get your thoughts on uh, if now's a good time to get into semis, and specifically the company I'm looking at is Micron MU. Okay, and it sounds like you don't have uh, that yet. Is that correct? That's correct. I don't have it yet. I'm looking at getting into something in that industry um, okay. at some point long term. Okay. Uh, do you have any semis in your portfolio? Nothing. Okay. Well, let's, let's take a look at uh, Micron Technology, symbol MU. They are in the semiconductor industry. Short side, very low, 2.7%. Institutional ownership, 84.2%. High PE ratio of 45.7 versus 22.7. Price of sales looks good, though, 3.1 versus 4.8. Price to tangible book value, very good, 1.5 versus 311 for the industry. And then price of cash flow, 8 versus 14.3. So valuation ratio is looking pretty good except for the uh, P.E. ratio. We do see on the earnings growth here uh, over the last year down 82.3%. The industry is up 10.6. you got to do some reading here to find out why did their earnings drop by 82%. But even their sales were down 26% when the industry is up 2.8%. So what is going on with the sales and earnings for Micron technology here? I also do see the analysts gave it a five-year growth estimate on those earnings of a negative 34.3. That is not very good. They do pay a 0.7% yield, only use 31% of their earnings to pay that out. Looking at the balance sheet, got a nice current ratio, 4.2 versus 2.9. And even debt to equity looks pretty good at 0.3 versus 0.6. Net profit margin is on the low side, 7% versus 21.2. I would like to see a higher profit margin. And return equity also very, very low, 3.4 versus 25.2. Chase, what do you got? Yeah, so current price here for Micron, $64.36. 52-week highs, $75.41. And the low is $48.43. Uh, semiconductors, for the most part, have done quite well this year. And, and Micron's been a benefactor. That's actually up 29% year to date. Now, the strange thing is when you go out on Micron, I go out to August 2024 because they report on a fiscal basis, the estimated earnings <clears> per <throat> share is just 70 cents. We're going to target sell price of $11.62. And the other strange thing is in 2023, they're estimated to lose $4.50. And I remember looking at Micron several years ago, and it seemed that their cyclicality of earnings was a lot higher than a lot of the yeah. other semiconductor companies. And it always kind of kept us out of Micron, I'm going to say. And I think, I remember looking at it years ago, and I think it was around like 10. Would have loved to buy it, obviously. But yeah. the, the cyclicality of the earnings just always troubled me. And I, I'm going to point out 2025 again, 
earnings jump back up to 493. So I mean, the earnings are all over this the place on this business, which makes it very hard to value. So that's one concern I, I do have with the business. And I do remember looking at this, saying the same thing, like they go up and down. It's a wild ride on this one, and, and I forget why that happens. I forget what they do. I think uh, they, they're involved in memory. Memory. Uh, memory chip, like memory chips. chips. Right, right. And actually, you did mention 2025, but there's not as many analysts as probably 2024. Mm-hmm. But also, you'll get numbers in September-ish right. for this year, and then you'll be looking at 2025. And, and, and Micron is one that, Anthony, I've always kind of liked Micron because it looks like it's good, it looks attractive, but I just don't feel comfortable with how up and down their earnings are. I, th- I think there's other better chip companies out there than a Micron. So I'm I'm going to probably recommend something else as opposed to a Micron. And, and I will say, I mean, I, I just, I think it's so funny when I, I, I listen to people on TV talk about this chip space. It's like, oh, well, I, I just don't know if they talked a lot about H2 or the second half of the year. I just don't know if we're going to get that recovery in the second half. But the thing I look at is I know the recovery is coming at some point. Yes. You know? yeah. And I, I know that chips are going to be a good spot. And I, honestly, I, I'm kind of looking at the chip space saying, you know, we got the debt ceiling coming up. It may not hurt to be a little patient, and you may miss a, a good chip company, but I, I'd rather be a little patient to make sure I, I get a good price for these. And especially when I look at like a Micron, that the numbers just aren't there. I, I think I'd rather look for a different chip company. And then even with those other chip companies, they've done well so far this year. And as I said, they may go higher and you might miss it. But also you could get a pullback and actually get a, a, a good business at a better price here. Yeah, and I, and, and I think you did say, Chase, it's up, what, 29% year-to-date. Yeah. So it's done very well year-to-date. And it always seems this stock, Micron, goes down in the 40s and bounces back up to 60 and then goes back down again. So it's a very wild ride. Uh, I mean, there's other chip companies out there that I like better than a, than a Micron just because I, I, I don't understand why they have such volatile earnings. And it just it could cause you to buy high and sell low. And then you sold and like, oh, shoot, a year later it was back up again. So it's... Pretty tough one to hold on to. I'd, I'd, I'd look for another chip company. Already? All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. Okay, Anthony. Thanks for calling. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, wow. Uh, we only got a couple minutes left here. And, and, and Chase, I mean, we do talk about uh, we think chips are the place to be going forward. And uh, one thing I, I was just thinking about, too, does Micron have any operations or anything else in China? That's one thing. I know we, we, when we're looking at a chip company. That's one thing we think about. The problem is... Almost all of them have some relation to China. Yeah. So how much, I guess, is though. A lot of them have high exposure. I mean, right. you even look at like an Intel or obviously a Qualcomm. The problem is they 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 sell a lot in China because they sell their components to chip makers in China. So it's not like they're they're selling to an end consumer in China. They're selling to chip companies in China to then right. sell sell elsewhere. So it's when you look at the sales in a lot of chip companies, there's a heavy concentration in China for the most part. So that is a risk in the semiconductor space that, that you have to be cognizant of. And, and again, I am very concerned on China. We're on Dr. Phil. Oh, closing bell already. But I was going to say, concerned about China, long-term, not short-term uh, at this point in time. So, well, there's the closing bell. Thank you for listening to Smart Investing Show. It is for informational purpose only and should not be used as investment advice. If you like to discuss in more detail your investment needs, have other investment questions, feel free to call myself Brent Wilsey or Chase Wilsey at 858-546-4306. That's 858-546-4306. And visit the website. Remember about that newsletter there and sign up for it free. It goes out on Friday. Smartinvesting2000.com. 
That's smartinvesting2000.com. Thanks for listening to Smart Investing Show. We'll be back next week. Have a great week. To think that I did all that.